Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you for joining in today. This is today's edition, edition episode 280 of our Bible Bites as we read through the scriptures this year. And today's reading is found in Matthew chapter 13 through 14. And I want to bring out several things, so I'm going to try to uh, fly through these. First of all, in verse 3 and in other places throughout this these chapters, you will see several parables. And in speaking in parables, actually these are stories that, that contain a spiritual truth, but it's sort of hidden in um, the mix of an actual natural example that he uses. And if you'll remember in Psalm 78, verse 2, it was prophesied that he would speak in parables. And that was prophesied by the prophet Asaph. And he is actually termed a prophet and listed um, here later on because he is called the prophet and he was the writer of that psalm. In verse 3 through 9, we have the first parable that Matthew records for us is the parable of the sower could be listed as the parable of the soils because the real difference is the four different soils that are spoken of here. And we will get into the explanation of that that Jesus himself gives. We don't have to wonder about it. He makes it clear what it is. The um, He mentions here about the open ears again, him that has an ear, let him hear, speaking of these open ears. Now, <clears throat> the disciples wonder, well, why are you talking in parables so Jesus explains, before he gets into the explanation of the parable itself, he tells them the purpose of parables. And the purpose is to hide the deeper truths from those who close their ears off and refuse to listen and hear. Because they're, they're not going to understand, they're not going to see because it says, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I would heal them. They don't want to repent. <clears throat> They're opposed to what Jesus is teaching, what he has to say. They don't want to accept him or receive him. And so Jesus clothes the, the more uh, deeper spiritual truths and he clothes them or masks them, so to speak, in a, in a natural story to preserve the deeper meaning from those who will not listen to it, who don't want to have anything to do with it. And we see, we see them referred to in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, and Ezekiel 12, verse 2. We also see in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 13 how, how it is their own choice. They are the ones that are closing their ear. They are the ones that are ref refusing it. So he makes clear that there are special things for those who are receiving him, even more so than the Old Testament saints in verse 16 and 17, because he talks about how many of them wished to see what the, what the disciples now are seeing. In verse 18 through 23 of chapter 13 is where he explains the first parable, the one with the sower and the soils. And he makes it very clear exactly what the definitions are. The seed is the word of God. <clears throat> 
The wayside is those that hear, don't understand, don't fully receive it or want to understand or seek understanding. And so the devil comes, takes it away from them and it's gone. The stony places are kind of those that get saved out of some emotional hype, so to speak, or some momentary conviction or whatever they respond, but they don't become a disciple. They fall away by the wayside because they don't develop roots. The way we develop a root system as a Christian is by becoming a Christian disciple, by daily talking to the Lord in prayer, worshiping him, reading his word, his Bible that he has given to us. Those are the ways that we grow as a disciple and put down roots. And so that's who these people are. Then the thorns are those who receive the word gladly and they've got, they've got roots, but they allow the cares of the world or the distractions around them and the deceitfulness of riches and wealth to choke, to strangle out and almost suffocate them and choke that word, suffocating that word from them. And as a result of that, they become unfruitful. They do not yield what they ought to be yielding. They become barren. But the good ground is those who hear the word, understand it, as contrasted with the wayside ones, bears fruit. And this bearing of fruit requires, first of all, it requires a good root system, not like the stony ground. And it requires dis diligence to avoid distractions and delusions and deception like the thorny people and the thorny soils that he spoke of. The result for those planted in the good ground and those who receive the word with good soil in their heart is that they will bear fruit. They will, in bearing fruit, glorify and honor God, bless people, and earn rewards. And we're not doing that to earn the rewards, but that is part of what God has promised. It's just the truth. Notice there are different levels of fruit bearing. Some will yield a hundredfold, 60-fold and 30-fold. It does not matter which category you're in. What God expects of us is to be faithful, and we let Him control the audience, and we let Him control the amount of growth that there is. We just have the responsibility to be faithful. He gives another parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. He gives the parable of the mustard seed, a tiny little seed but grows into a great tree. He gives the parable of hidden leaven that a woman hides until the whole loaf is opened up. All of these are fulfilling that prophecy from Asaph in Psalm 78, verse 2. He goes down in verse 37 through 44, and he explains the tares and the wheat. He identifies exactly who the characters are. The sower is the Son of Man, Jesus himself. The field is the world. The, the good seeds are his disciples or his church. The tares are the wicked people that have been sown by the enemy who is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. He clear, clearly identifies all of this for us. 
The tares are those that cause offense in the body of Christ. They will set traps for people, lay out for you an occasion to fall, uh, drown you or lead you into error and give an impediment. It really is talking about the trigger on a trap that is set so that when, let's say, an animal was walking through the woods and, and pops that trigger, down comes the snare. That's what he's talking about there as far as the tares, and that's what they do. And they are in among the body of Christ in this world and in this age, and we need to understand that and be very cautious. Jesus warned against deception. We must be careful. Not everything that glitters is gold. Not everything that says it's Christian is Christian. And we need to have the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God and test every spirit by the Word of God. <clears throat> the tares, he says, are those that practice as a habit or a lifestyle of causing offense, causing people to fall away, and lawlessness, a violation and a rebellion and contempt for law, for God's law particularly. Their end is they will be burned in a furnace of fire, but the wheat that's left, oh, they form the righteous that will shine in God's kingdom. He gives another parable of this hidden treasure, he doesn't completely explain that, but it appears that the, the man that finds the field and wants to buy the, the treasure is the Lord Jesus himself. The treasure are the people in the world, all those that will call upon him and receive him as Savior. And for joy, if you'll notice, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 talks about the joy being set before the Lord that he endured the cross and the Bible says that this man will go and sell everything he's got. Jesus came to earth, in a sense, emptying himself of all the treasure and glory that he had in order to buy and redeem this treasure, us. You can find more scriptures that indicate this and definitely support what Jesus did for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, where it says we are redeemed by his precious blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, where Paul tells us we are bought with a price. And Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, where he tells, he tells us that we, are, we, have, uh, we have been bought through eternal redemption. Jesus has um, ensured and obtained eternal redemption for us. And you'll find if you go back in the Torah, the first five books of Moses, even in there, God's treasure was listed to be his people. He was going to make his people, he said, his own special treasure in the earth. Jesus' blood has bought the world. He has bought all of those who will call upon him, and they are his. Praise God. He gives another parable, the merchant and the pearl. <clears throat> I love this because the hidden treasure tells us how he cared for the whole of the world. All of humanity, every person that was born, he was willing to come to earth, be born as a baby, grow up and live a sinless life, die on the cross, bearing our sins and our shame, 
uh, be buried in the ground, raised from the dead as God's acceptance of his sacrifice for all. He created uh, or he obtained a once for all redemption for us. And so the parable just above it in verse 44 about the hidden treasure speaks of the whole of the world as a corporate uh, unit. But yet in verse 45 through 46, this is another parable of the merchant and the pearl. This one, I believe, takes that same concept and applies it to an individual, to a person. There was a, the merchant and, and there were lots of pearls, but there was one and he sold all he had for the one. Now, beloved, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Oh, yes, the Bible says God so loved the world, the world as a whole. He died for every one of us. But thank be, thanks be to God and thank the Lord that he also is our personal Lord and Savior, individual. This takes it down to the individual, one pearl, you, me. He came just as much to redeem you as he did to redeem everybody else in the world. It's a personal thing. You were worth it. I was worth it. Oh, praise God. That's the beauty of that parable, I, I believe. He gives us another parable about the dragnet and how it draws all kinds of fish in, the good and the bad, and then they'll be separated later on. He, in verse 52 I want to read this to you because this is important, because this applies to every disciple of Jesus, including all of us today. He says to them, it says, then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. I want to explain that just for a moment, because what he's saying here is that basically every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven, in essence, we're in his school. When you become a disciple, when you become a follower of Jesus, you become a disciple. And in essence, you become in Jesus' school, so to speak. And he is teaching you. That's what he was doing with these disciples. He was living life with them and teaching them how to be his disciple. And so this applies to us today. And he says that when we are instructed, when we become his pupil in, into the things of, of God's kingdom, into the things of uh, the Lord, then we are to bring out or send out out of our treasure what, he's, what we've learned, what he's deposited into us through our schooling. Then we now have to take that and pull out of that, out of that treasure, both old and new, things that are both old and new. We can't ignore the old and only grasp to the new, nor can we ignore the new and grasp to the old. And I believe he's speaking of the, the, old, uh, the old Testament and the New Testament, so to speak, in here. He's talking about how they're connected. You cannot truly understand the New Testament unless you understand more about the Old Testament. They are one unit. And the Old is the New Testament concealed, and the New 
is the Old Testament revealed. They work together and function together as a unit. And so God is saying you've got to have both. And it is through both of those that we bring out of those treasures and share them with others. We're told here in verse 55 through 57 about Jesus' humanly fam human family. Uh, his father, Joseph, is not here at the time. He's obviously... Uh, been dead now for some time. But we have Mary, his mother, and she believed in him. She knew who he was. But at this time, his brothers and sisters did not. His half-brothers, he had four half-brothers listed here, and at least two or more sisters, because it is in the plural form. And so they were his humanly family. And so these people are saying, well, He's just, a, he's just from the lowly town of Nazareth. He's just their son. And they reject him and they refuse him and do not receive him as Messiah, even some within his own family, his brothers and his sisters at that time. So he's rejected by his own and his family, and that fulfills the prophecy, the prophetic word of Micah in Micah chapter 7, verse 6. And notice that because of their rejection of him and their unbelief, it, uh, it stopped the move of God in their midst. Unbelief will do that. God cannot work in, in uh, a condition and an atmosphere of unbelief. It's faith that moves the hand of God. Chapter 14, we read about John the, Beha uh, the Baptist being beheaded because of Herod and Herod um, being upset with him because he rebuked Herod. He stood for the truth and it cost him his life. And so in verse 13, we see Jesus' response to that. This was, remember, the death not only of his, his friend and his um, messenger that was sent before him, but also of his cousin as well. But yet notice when the, when the multitudes followed him, the Bible says he was moved with compassion. He still loved them. And it was because of his love for them that he went ahead and he, he laid aside his own grief and his own desires to meet their needs. So we have the one of the most well-known stories in the Bible um, spoken of here in the life of Jesus, which was the feeding of the 5,000. Technically, it was probably more like anywhere from 10 to 20,000 because the 5,000 were just the men, plus women and children. And I want to read to you verse 16. The disciples come to him and say, hey, it's getting late in the day. Everybody's getting hungry. They need to go and have supper. So let's send them away. Notice what Jesus says, verse 16. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So Jesus is using this again as an object lesson to build their faith. He's putting the responsibility on them. And I can imagine being the disciples, and you know, we're this is recorded in several other gospels, of course. So there's different accounts that give us different details. But notice this in verse 17 of Matthew's account, and they said to him, "We have here only five loaves and two fish." In other words, Jesus, we don't have anywhere near enough to feed this crowd. We can't even feed one person, much less 10 or 20,000 that are gathered here. There's no way we can do that. We have only 
five loaves and two fish. They were looking in the natural. They were looking at the lack. They saw only and it being nowhere near enough. But notice what Jesus did. He used it as a faith-building lesson for them. He used it out of his compassion and his love to minister to their physical needs, but also to teach the disciples lessons about faith and lessons about what he can do because he took what was not enough, what was not enough, he took it and he blessed it and broke it and multiplied it so that it became way more than enough. And they even had 12 fragments or baskets of leftovers. So Jesus even preserved the leftovers so that it would not be wasted. He made it more than enough. And when we feel like, there's a lesson in this, because sometimes we feel like, God, who am I? What can I do for you? I only have five loaves and two fish. It's nowhere near enough to do the job. And yet Jesus, all he's asking, exactly what he said here. He said to them in verse 18, he said, bring them here to me, the five loaves and the two fish. Beloved, if you feel like you've only got five loaves and two fish, if you feel like you're in that category and you're like, there's no way I can be any effectiveness for the kingdom of God. I can't do this great work. Who am I? I'm so little. I'm so unworthy. I don't have resources. I don't have this. I don't have that. And you may try to belittle yourself or your calling. Oh, but Jesus, hear him say this to you right now. Hear him say this to you right now. Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Bring what you have to him and watch him as he can bless it and distribute it and multiply it. And it can be way more than enough. Praise be to God. In verse 22 through 32 of this same chapter is where we find Jesus walking on the water to them. This happens in the fourth watch or between the time period of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. He comes walking on top of the water, fulfilling the words that Job recorded in Job chapter 9, verse 8. And then Peter says, if it's you, let me come too. So Peter starts walking. Now, Peter gets a bad break sometimes, but at least he did get out of the boat. At least he was willing to try. His mistake was that he took his eyes off of Jesus. And beloved, we will start to sink when we take our eyes off of Jesus. We've got to keep our focus on him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one for us to uh, to keep our eyes upon. But when he did lose focus and he did start to sink, he knew what to do. He cried out, Lord, save me. I want to tell you, friend, that Jesus still hears those words from anybody who needs rescue, from anybody who is sincerely crying out, Lord, save me. If you 
need him and you call out to him and you mean it in your heart, he will do the exact same thing for you that he did here for Peter. He will immediately save you, immediately save you and catch you, seize upon you with his strong, firm hand that will hold you and rescue you just like he did Peter. Praise be to God. The problem was that Peter doubted because he took his eyes off the Lord. May God grant us the ability to avoid doubt. And doubt comes when we lose our focus on him. Praise God. Then he goes to another town in the Galilean area, and the men recognize him and bring him all kinds of people who were sick, and, and many of them were healed just because they touched the hem of his garment. We've talked about that healing him that was in his garment, fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. I pray that this has been a blessing to you today. Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today. In Jesus' name.